0: Nice, nice to have some of our extra visitors tonight. Uh, come back next week. Well, no, don't come back next week. Next week, we're actually not going to have a class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I said that so I don't forget. I'll be on vacation next week, technically. I'll, I'll be out of town by this time next week. So uh, not next week, but the following week, Lord willing, we'll be back for the next class, okay? Um, okay, so we're studying tonight chapter... Uh, 30 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're very close to uh, finishing this uh, class and study. Uh, The chapter tonight is of church censors. Now the word censor, the way it's spelled there, uh, is uh, the idea of discipline. So it's talking about what needs to happen in the church when there are issues and problems and Who's in charge, and how does it work, and why, and how can we do that, okay? So like I joked earlier, yay, everybody's flocking tonight to come here on church discipline, you know. Can you imagine, uh, we're going to put out flyers and invite people, you need to come to church this week, because we're going to learn about church discipline. Oh yeah, I got to be there. Um, so, but this is, you know, our confession teaches us the main things to study. And you're going to see this is a significant part of scripture, and, uh, and how we do uh, life. So the first thing I want to read, is just a couple of scriptures for a reference point. Remember, when I read the confessional sections for you, there's a bunch of scripture references that I don't go into. I like to try to have a reference for us, though. So the first one is, uh, and Simon Peter answered, and Jesus asked the question, okay, who do you say that I am? Different people are saying different things about me. Who am I? What do you say? And uh, that's, by the way, that's the question you all need to make sure you've answered before the Lord. But that's another, that's a sermon, right? Okay, we'll keep going. And verse 16, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, now I'm resisting the temptation to uh, start to address some issues with that text, but it is an important one related to Christ delegating authority of uh, ruling the church. Okay, and now we're going to turn to Matthew 18. I think I want to say starting with verse 17. No, earlier. Verse 15, now notice this is the word moreover, so I want to go back to preaching through Matthew and consider that context a little bit. But this is a very important scripture to go to, first of all, with conflict resolution, and secondly, with the of officers of the church working with conflicts or sins or different things when they arise to a place that it can't be a private thing and it's not going away. This talks about how do you deal with problems with others, and then when the leaders of the church have to be involved, and it says when and only when, how that's supposed to happen and what, what needs to be the result. So this is a very important scripture. I think uh, I've heard it said, or maybe I said, I can't remember. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known scriptures and the least obeyed. Okay? Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, Thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth... Now this sounds like Matthew 16, right? shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's as far as we'll go with that, okay? I'd actually like to turn to uh, two more scriptures that come to mind. I think will be helpful reference points before I uh, start really rolling with things and get moving. Turn to Hebrews 13, verse 7 with me. We're going to look at two verses that are close in Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 7. I don't think I get into them real closely or directly tonight, but I think they're good reference points for us for our study. Hebrews 13, first verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now look with me down to verse 17 now obey them verse 17 obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you okay i i actually have uh, two more scriptures well still the other one but i got another one i want to think of too but let's uh uh let's see here you can't read my mind. i was about to ask you what was i think just thinking of here um let's go to first peter i think it's first peter first peter five i think yeah okay first peter five verse one kind of the other side of of what i just read the elders first peter five verse one the elders which are among you i exhort whom am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucker, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples and samples to the flock. Particularly want to highlight that verse 3. Now go back with me to one more. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1. Uh, Now, this obviously has a broader context, but uh, important especially for those who would have the responsibility of dealing with people who need to be dealt with in formal discipline for the church. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So I'm going to start the study because I got all these things in my mind. So therefore, you know, I'm just going to try to get stick to the script, so I don't keep you too long. Okay, um, let me just take a swig of water real quick. Okay, let's get to our notes. Uh, everybody have a handout that would like one. Nobody's missing a chance to look at it. Okay, this class I take. Uh, I give you very detailed notes. I'm kind of developing it over the year every time I teach the class. I always like to try to reflect another book or two on the Westminster Standards. Right now it's Thomas Watson's um, Body of Divinity. And uh, so it's always kind of growing. But I stick to the notes pretty closely, uh, although I'll talk off of them. But because I read them pretty closely, I I like to give you the actual handout. When we finish this, I'll be trying to give you a little bit of a breather, and we'll do something a little simpler. It uh, won't require as much time or intensity and won't require handouts, but that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm explaining just because we have some extra visitors, okay? So, glad you all have it. Of church censors, or of church discipline is what it means. Chapter 30 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this relates it has relation to what we studied before of the church, has relation to what's coming next week or next time uh, of councils and, and synods, that kind of thing. Um, but again, I determined last time I did this, is too much in one class, so we'll split it up. But there's some overlap, there's some logical connections. Okay, top of the page, I'm going to start going through the notes with you. It should be noted that the Westminster Assembly, now those are the ministers called by the government in England in the 1600s to put this all together so that the three parts of uh, Britain would be more reformed and more biblical according to the continents example. Okay, So that's who the Westminster Assembly is. It's the assembly of these cream-of-the-crop ministers from the three parts of England, uh, Britain uh, that the government asked come together uh, during Civil War, helping us to be more Christian as a nation with, with the state church as the focus. Okay, so it should be noted that the Westminster Assembly first completed the form of Presbyterian Church Government and the Directory for Public Government, which are intended to be understood in interpreting what is written in these chapters. More to say on that, but What I mainly want to make sure I'm making clear from this is before we get the Westminster Confession of Faith, before we get the larger catechism, before we get the shorter catechism, what we're most familiar with, although there were other uh, documents, excuse me, sanctioned, officially uh, received as these are formal documents, such as on worship. We don't tend to use those now, but our church technically we say we subscribe to those because we have more modern things. Uh, but the first thing they did, the first document they did, and it's in your big green uh, bounded book of the different things from the Westminster Standards, the first thing they did was the directory, the, excuse me, the form of Presbyterian church government. That was the first thing they did. I think that's really significant to kind of just think about that. Before anything else, that was the most important thing. Now, England, the parliament rejected it. Why? Well, they didn't want a plurality of elders. They wanted to be the new people telling the church what to do instead of the king. They wanted to get rid of the king, which, which was what the Civil War was all about. But they still wanted to be the one that told the church what to do and did not want to be told by the church what to do, although they did ask for this advisory role. Okay? Uh, so they rejected it. But the Church of Scotland, really kind of the heritage of Presbyterianism, uh, who was, had five commissioners and influenced it uh, and already had been through this Reformation, they did adopt all of this and have preserved it for us, okay? So the directory of the public, uh, of public church, or excuse me, the form of presbyterian church government is the very first thing they developed. And therefore, it should inform what isn't spoken to as directly in our confession about church government, okay? Uh, such as detailing the officers of the church, that kind of thing. Uh, also, church discipline is understood by the historic Reformed church as the third of three marks of a true church, along with the right preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacraments. So if you're looking for a church and you want to know if you have a true church, a true biblical church, no church is perfect. We saw that in the section on the, in the confession. There are churches that are more or less pure, and that includes us. (laughs) Uh, There are also, it says, some that have become synagogues of Satan. So we recognize that. But what we want to uh, pay attention to here is three things you're looking for proper preaching of the word, uh, proper administration of the sacraments, and third, what we're highlighting tonight, church discipline happens. Now, that's not just correction. It's also, of course, having a plurality of elders that are governing the worship of the church, the life of the church, deciding how we do worship, what we won't do. You know, it's a lot of practical things like that, too, but it's their responsibility. If we determine we need to reform on something, Going through that study, presenting it to the church, making decisions on those. It's not always uh, discipline is just, you know, direct dealing with a problem. That would be the focus of the discussion, though. Uh, but So it re- makes me recall at seminary, the president and professor of this class, and man I worked with a lot at seminary because I worked for the seminary also while I was there for a while. I remember him asking this question. I don't remember what class it was, but he says, the third mark of a true church is discipline. And then he asked the rhetorical question. How many true churches are out there? His implication, probably not as many as we think. Because if church discipline is not happening, if there's not decency and order according to 1 Corinthians 14, it's probably not a real church. Lots of churches know how to fake it. But at the end of the day, is people are going in and out of the door and they're not asked, not asked any questions and have no responsibility for membership alone. Remember, we focused on that. So many churches don't even think membership is required. Um, go back to your notes on how it clearly is from scripture but um, it relates to this tonight if you're not a member of church then you can't obey Hebrews 7 and 17 that we look 13 7 and 17 obey the elders well there's no way of really working with someone if they're not formally yoked in covenant because there's no formal way of discipline because there's no, for, no formal covenant together submitting and acknowledging and recognizing these, these things if it comes up uh, that's one aspect of membership but R.C. Sproul says this back to the notes Uh, The classic notion, uh, excuse me, this classic notion of of the uh, third mark of a true church being that the church does discipline. This classic notion, he says, is one essential characteristic of the true church. It's the presence of a duly established government. And that's the thing. Not just that they govern, but it's an established government according to how it should be. By the way, there's a particular way that God gives in the scriptures to govern the church, by the way. What's it called? Huh? Can't hear you. Well, yeah, but what's that related to? All right, you get the gold star tonight. Yeah, Presbyterianism. That's the true biblical government of the church. Everything else is not scriptural government. And the point is, there is a scriptural government. There's a way God wants his church run. It's called Presbyterianism. That's based on the word presbyteros, for elders, plurality of elders, okay? A lot of implications. If I could stick to the notes, we'll get to the implications. But uh, th- that alone is something people tend to not recognize. There is a government. The way the church is to be governed, Jesus has told us a lot about it, okay? All right, let's get into it. Chapter 30 of Church Censors. Chapter 30, section 1, I'll read for you. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government In the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. Now, remember, we already studied civil magistrate, civil government, right? So I'm going to avoid commenting because I'll start blabbing on that. But that's been dealt with. And now they're saying the church has its own government, not the same as the civil government. Right there, a lot of people are not happy to hear that in the original context, okay? Uh, But letter A, let me start to explain some things here. This section specifically teaches against what is called Erastianism. And a lot of these names come from the guy's name who was purporting the idea. And in this case, that's the same Erastus. Um, Erastianism, uh, which views the church as a department of the state. Now, remember, we talked about uh, we are establishmentarianisms, and we don't believe in disestablishmentarianism. That means we do believe there should be a state church, and it should be Presbyterian and that's going against some of the American alterations to our confession, okay? But that's not what is being said here. The church is a separate sphere of authority working with the sphere of authority of the civil government, both under Christ. It should be a Christian nation, okay? That's the context of what they're trying to do here. But the problem is they wanted the church government to be a department of the state, so therefore the state is the authority. By the way, this relates to why we have disincorporated, deincorporated, okay? That was required by the denomination we're trying to join, but we made the decision after stud- studying the scriptures, we studied a lot of stuff, which we handed to you and went over in congregational meetings. We were convinced by the theology, and we said, even if we don't join the denomination, we're going to do this because we believe it's most biblical. And that's what we want, right? And most confessional. Uh, but it's, the state does not run the church. We're not an entity of the state, okay? That's not how we get our existence and authority. Now, Van Dixorn explains, back to the notes, Van Dixorn explains the contextual significance of what is being said here. Quote, historically, the very fact of the independence of church government was resisted by both king and parliament. For leaders in the state did not want to be accountable to a leadership in the church. The church is not the religious arm of the state. It is an institution distinct from the state and has its own unique purpose, he says, and of course its own unique autonomous authority not autonomous of christ but autonomous of the state not autonomous in the sense that we don't recognize the state's authority and civil sphere from christ but it's its own authority over the church now this is why you know you got mr big shot government official here let's say well i won't say a certain office think i'm picking on somebody let's say we got some big official uh, person in government as part of our church but they're doing things that are not biblical and it's public we got to deal with it they need to be disciplined so they change Who are you telling me? I'm boss of you. I'm the president or I'm the whoever, right? I'm the governor. I'm the, you don't tell me what to do. Yes. as far as it's relates to the church and your life outside the church has to submit to Jesus Christ. Yes. We do have to tell you what to do. I don't want to be submitting to you schmuck farmer, elder, or whatever. You know, I don't, I don't have to do what you tell me to do. Who are you? Because by the way, you don't have to have gone to college or have a certain prestigious job to be an elder. What are the requirements for the elder? You can run your family. Your wife submits to you, and so do your children. You have a godly life, doesn't mean perfect, right? So I remember uh, Dr. Bruce Bickle giving a message. He was talking about when he was a pastor in Chicago, there was a somebody big in his church that people wanted to be elder, and he had to say, no, he's not qualified according to Scripture. But they did train to make a fireman an elder because he was qualified, you see? Well, these guys are like, who are you tell? You can't tell me what to do. Calvin had this trouble in Geneva. He wanted weekly communion, as one example, which probably good to mention, considering our study recently. And the con- the is it the, not the consistory? I forget what they called it. Um, might have been the consistory. The government essentially they didn't want it, and the government would get in the way. If you can't discipline that person, no, no, that you got that person's hands off, you know, because of political reasons. And what's being said here is, no, 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 no. <laughs> I've got to get to the quote by Andrew Melville in a while. If I don't get to it, it's in a footnote, I think. Remind me, okay? Uh, unless it's late, then don't remind me. <laughs> this is also against, oh, excuse me. We must remember that Jesus is Lord of Lords of all the world and King and Head of the Church. That's what we try to remember to pray a lot. A lot of times that's how we'll open or close a, a formal gathering related to government and, uh, you know any kind of meeting that's needing to decide something. This is also against prelacy. what is prelacy? Uh, a hierarchy of bishops now that's particularly in the Catholic Church, now, of course that's the whole problem with the Catholic Church. they want to be the boss church and state all in one <laughs> right and uh, but you know there's this idea of like uh, you know like Methodist churches, Anglican a lot of churches uh, they could tell me it's time for me to leave whether I want to and whether you want me to I'm now telling you that you're going under this other place it's not a decision-making of a plurality of elders, the guy at the top gets to tell the guy under him what he's doing, and he does not have a choice, kind of like maybe maybe the military, for lack of better, better illustration. That's a form of church government. It's not biblical, uh, but uh, it's against prelacy. And quote, Presbyterianism has its archbishop, and that archbishop is Christ. That is uh, John Murray. By the way, a lot of John Murray stuff I'm having in the footnotes tonight, most of which I can't touch on, which is going to be really hard because I really want to, but I have the suggested readings. It's all in our library. We have an amazing library. Thank you girls for organizing it and uh, his collected writings. You can read a lot of this for yourself and I encourage that. Uh, Jesus rules over his church that he has purchased and his church is also, quote, the kingdom of heaven. church is the kingdom of heaven and he's the king of it. While it is not of this world, it is conquering this world. And he has, quote, appointed a government over it. That's probably the first thing to really drill in our heads tonight. Jesus has a, he is the head of the church, and he has appointed a government over it. While uh, it is, if that government is appointed, it should be discernible by command and demonstration in scripture, and therein followed. And so it is as Presbyterianism. As far as government is concerned, I quote, no church is pure unless it is Presbyterian. J.I. Williamson. Now, that's not meaning everything else can do whatever you want, but in terms of government, he says, if it's not Presbyterianism, it's not pure. It's not biblical. Pastor Bell, the pastor here for 30 years, I listened to his membership takes when I transferred, Pastor Bell's membership class listed the following as the basics of Presbyterian, that is, biblical church government. Number one popular election officers chosen by and responsible to the people please note in our church that only men in federal headship vote at our church and only on the election of officers although if there's a really big issue uh, we might bring it open to the church to to vote on um, such as joining the denomination or deincorporating we opened that up we thought that was too significant to decide but the the session is for the point of making these decisions and guiding but you can't have a pastor or an officer thrown upon you. Uh, there's a popular vote for that. So anytime there'd be a new deacon or a new elder or a new minister, the church uh, gets to choose, gets to vote. They don't, they don't get to have... Now, presbytery is also involved. Um, they might have that idea to, potential of overruling. Or, for instance, if we get to join the denomination, we can't ordain our elders. They have to ordain them. There's different reasons they believe that. Um, but the local church can't just have any elder or deacon or pastor thrown upon them. That's actually pretty significant, okay? Popular election. Uh, in terms of federal hardship voting and other things like that, those are things that we researched and studied over time, brought to the church years ago. Got a lot of, lot of stuff we can share with you on that if you would like to see those materials. And I'm sure they're on our website too, okay? Um, that was back in 2011. Uh, by the way, that is what our presbytery holds to as well, okay? Okay. Um, Acts 1, 31-26. Well, I will give you a lot of scriptures. Number two, offices of minister, elder, and deacon, and men only. I gave you a bunch of scriptures for that. I'll let you read. Number three, plurality of elders. Exodus 18, Acts 14-23. There's a number of scriptures there. Acts 15, by the way, is a big one. But we're going to look at that a lot more next time. Not next week, but next time. Because we're going to study synods and councils, higher courts of the church, or you might say broader courts of the church. We'll look at that. Uh, Acts 15 is a significant example of why we believe churches should be part of the broader church in a presbytery in a denomination. It shouldn't exist independently, which we do. We didn't always, uh, and we're looking at trying to remedy that. And we've been working on it for years. Okay, uh, but Acts 15 would be a big one. Related to plurality of elders, but also plurality of elders in terms of different churches gathering together for church councils, okay? And then uh, number four, Pastor Bell points out, designation of a person to ecclesiastical office with the laying on of hands. And number five, privilege of appeal or review. You have the right and opportunity, if it's significant, to go to the session. And when there's the broader churches, to go to those higher courts, you might say. Uh, and you'll see like in the black book the OPC black book we use right now but the BCO of the RPCGA also um, uh, it has steps for that it even has forms for complaints there can actually be court cases you don't see that much but uh, and that can be more at a higher level too if it's you know, a presbyter within a denomination kind of a context okay? uh, Charles Hodge describes Presbyterianism negatively and positively as follows which I think is helpful so this indented paragraph, uh, Charles Hodge, not A. A. Hodge, which I quote a ton in this, in this class. This is his father. The three great negations of Presbyterianism, that is, the three great errors which it denies are, one, that all church power vests in the clergy. Two, that the apostolic office is perpetual. Uh, you know, that's speaking against the Catholic Church of Peter, right? Right. Uh, Three, that each individual Christian congregation is independent. Presbyterianism is mainly teaching against those things negatively. The affirmative statement of these principles is number one, that the people have a right to a substantive part in the government of the church. Two, that presbyters who minister in word and doctrine are the highest permanent officers of the church and all belong to the same order. There's no bishop, there's no pope. We're all accountable. Uh, Three, that the outward and visible church is or should be, one, in the sense that a smaller part is subject to a larger and a larger to the whole. The power of the church relates, one, to matters of doctrine, two, power to set down rules for the ordering of public worship, three, power to make rules for her own government, four, power to receive into fellowship, and to exclude the unworthy from her own communion. We'll get into a lot of those details uh, with later questions and answers. In short, bottom of page 203. In short, Presbyterian church government can be summed up as Christ's organizational rule over his visible church by his word and spirit, particularly through the plurality of elders. Deacons report to the elders qualified and ordained to do his work. Now, let me touch on something here that I give you mostly by way of allusions, and I have the last few weeks, and footnotes, and a book at the end I'll highlight. Uh, Because I won't spend a lot of time on it now. It's too much to cover all these things. But it it is important. It's a big debate out there. But um, there's three offices in the church, three distinct offices. Deacon, governing or ruling elder, and minister, often referred to as a teaching elder, as if it is only two offices—an elder and some of them teach. But the the standards clearly teach. And by the way, I'll be doing some articles on this eventually. <laughs> um, I've been asked to do it. Uh, clearly teach. And we we studied this. We happened upon this book. I'll mention to you later. We thought it was going to teach us how to do work of elder better, and actually it made us have to think about all. Oh, now we have got to think about this and then we notice as I was preaching through the large catechism I remember Mr. Renner looked back at some of the uh, the kind of the concordance of topics and he brought it up to me. We realized yeah, three offices is true. The minister is a distinct office, but he has one of his duties is a duty that overlaps and participates with the governing elders and that is ruling and governing the church. What's particularly important to recognize is the pastor doesn't run the church himself. Okay? pastor is not the boss of the church it's often the face of the church uh does a lot of the work on behalf of the session but the pastor is on an equal footing with the elders in session okay and he can't just make a decision without session uh, i think you'll remember mrs uh uh corson i'm getting that right corson for some reason i'm always afraid i'm gonna say it wrong you asked the question a few weeks ago and i said i can't make a declaration from the mic I'm Presbyterian. I have to talk with the elders about it, right? (laughs) I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. I mean, and and sometimes the elders get a little tired of me because I'll come to them with things they think I should just decide on my own. I'm like, no. I think it's important that we talk about and decide this as a as a session together. Okay. Um, So I want you to recognize uh, that the minister has that responsibility, but it's part of his distinct office. Yet he is sharing that aspect of ruling. He doesn't just preach and teach, and he gets to go to bed. No, he's involved in the hard work of the governing and ruling as well, but alongside with the elders, not independent. In fact, he's technically representing the Presbyterian in so doing, and the elders are technically representing the church in so doing, which makes sense. Sometimes pastor moves on. The elders usually are the ones that stay, right? So don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm planning on uh, getting here until I can hardly walk with. but But, uh, you know, those, there's a lot of really important and helpful things to think about that. But I'm going to stop because I, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I want you to be aware of that and that it is a big debate out there, and frankly, I think a lot of Presbyterians need to pay more attention to their standards, and particularly the form of Presbyterial church government, which some will joke teaches four office view as a way to dismiss the discussion. That's not true at all. A very close reading, doesn't even have to take a very hard reading, shows it's a three office, not four office. Doctor is in the office of minister. In that case, the doctor does have like a teaching aspect as the office of minister, okay? It's not a fourth office. You read the language, it's pretty obvious. We've got documents on it. I'm going to move on because I'm really priming to try to write those articles, and I've got to be careful. I don't want to spend too much time on it. I want you to be aware of it. There's a lot of footnotes and a lot of suggestive readings if that interests you, okay? Uh, I don't anticipate it's something that makes most people too worried about it, uh, but you should know. John Murray, bottom of page 203, John Murray helps us recognize the balance back to this idea of organizational rule. He says, top of page 204, in respect of rule... The person who is called the minister has no more authority or jurisdiction than the ruling elder. I should have just stuck with the notes, right? That's what I just said. Sorry. Uh, And therefore, no more responsibility devolves upon him than upon the elder. The minister, as a teaching elder, has his own distinctive function and exercise by preaching and teaching, a peculiar prerogative in the church of God, But in ruling, he is on a parity with the ruling elders. Parity means, relates to plurality, but also has to do with equality of authority. No higher, okay? Uh, Back to John Murray's quote. Each elder must be aware of the parity that exists in the rule of the church, and therefore the parity of responsibility and obligation. And I would challenge our elders, and I would challenge presbyters if I was preaching to them. One thing you do have to watch out, for in any church or denomination it always happens certain people have been a long time in the denomination maybe their father and their father's father were pastors and you know seminary profs some people just have strong personalities and there can be a tendency for those people to to have more sway there is equal authority officially but they can tend to have more sway in terms of how everybody else votes (laughs) and that's what we got to watch out for okay unless it's a true thing What we're saying is, what I want to challenge, those who might be more meek and humble, which is a good thing, you've got to be ready to stand up to the pastor and to the strong personalities in session or presbytery and vote your conscience and know your stuff and be able to back your vote up, even if you're going to say, I want my name registered, I am officially dissenting to this decision, and then I move forward in peace with you. But I want it recorded. I don't agree. Here's why. Maybe I even want to submit a paper about it then you move forward. That's Presbyterianism. You can have a dissenting minority vote and then move forward in peace, okay? But you need to be willing to, to speak up at the right times about certain things. Okay, page 204, back to the notes. It is important to highlight that the church is not a vast democracy. What? Yeah, by the way, neither is our country. It's called republicanism. It's, it's not run by a majority. A lot of people are seriously ignorant. Think, I'm sorry, I'm throwing it out there. We shouldn't have electoral college. Yeah, we should. You want a motley crew rule? Yes. You want certain states with not as many people to be run over with no vote, no influence? Come on. All right, I'm getting to another place. But that our country is based on Presbyterianism, that everybody has representation, and the majority they might have a little bit more. But then there's a balance of those things. Okay, we're not a democracy. It's not a majority vote on everything. That's going to be anarchy, and then that leads to dictatorship. Okay, back to the notes. Where everything is decided by the popular voice. (laughs) On this note, it is helpful to highlight James Henley Thornwell over against Hodge. They were contemporaries on defining Presbyterianism. C.N. Wilborn explains, Like Hodge, Thornwell established Presbyterianism upon three principles as well, albeit more particular, maybe more defined. Presbyterianism is the government of the church by parliamentary assemblies composed of two classes of elders and of elders only, and so arranged as to realize the visible unity of the whole church. I'm not going to elaborate on that. You can go back and, and meditate on it. John Murray concurs. In a word, the church, whether conceived of locally or ecumenically, does not rule itself. In that sense, it is not a pure democracy. Dixon writes... I don't think Hodge would disagree with this necessarily if I understand it correctly. Um, I think it's just being a little more careful and distinct. It's not a democracy. Uh, Dixon writes, democracy or popular government cannot but bring in great confusion whence many absurdities will follow. Okay, top of page 205, and I'm avoiding telling you about Dixon and reading all his footnotes. I give you a whole lot of footnotes here I can't look at tonight with you but i encourage you to give a look at them especially if you want to know more. Top of page 205, the elders are to rule, okay? Not the church. We do not have a congregational vote at our annual meetings. We have a update. We the session presents to the congregation. A lot of reformed churches, they still do that. We don't have committees that end up being authority over the elders practically. This session makes decisions on behalf of the church. We are not making congregational decisions with the church. We represent to the church what we're deciding. We never do something without lots of notice. If it's a big deal, we always give lots of stuff for people to study with the scriptures. And then we always ask for a meeting and get feedback and try to work with people if necessary before we ever make a decision. We don't just throw it on you. Okay, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision. At the end of the day, dad has to make the decision. Right? Or a family just can't do anything. Same idea. The elders are to rule. Elders are members of the body of Christ and are subject to the very same kind of rule of which they are the administrators. It is the recognition of investiture by the Holy Spirit that warrants and requires subjection by the people. It is the conviction of this rule by men as the ordinance of God that alone constrains subjection because it is subjection in the Lord. So, for instance, did you have a question? Oh, okay, sorry. I thought you were raising your hand. Oh, okay. Oh, was that an amen, maybe? (laughs) Sorry. Um, So, what he's saying, what they're saying is, look, you know, your elders aren't going to be perfect. Your pastor's not perfect. They don't have inherent authority. They've been chosen by the church and granted a delegated authority from Jesus Christ. They've been given a job to do with job descriptions, and they're expected to do their job by King Jesus. Okay? We're going to get to a particular scripture on that. So it's not our own authority, and we can be taken out of it uh, if, if we're doing something wrong, okay? But we're also not perfect. The reason we submit to the authority of the church, same reason we, wives submit to husbands, same reason kids submit to mom and dad, because of their office, because of their authority. And it doesn't mean you don't work with them in certain ways, doesn't mean you might not voice a concern, but at the end of the day, there has to be a decision maker, right? I mean, a company is not run by the employees, There might be stakeholders in it, but uh, the the CEO, the board, they have to make decisions on behalf of the company, right? Okay? Pray that we make wise decisions. Pray that we make careful biblical decisions. Uh, And I guess I should say here, and and not for profit. That's the temptation. Don't lose anybody in the pews, (laughs) right? I have lost income every year of my ministry here, except for a few times, and I'm not complaining, the truth is the church and thus I have had to face the facts of you're going to lose people if you're going to do discipline you're going to deal with real stuff and there's a temptation for people not to do it why well I had to get a second job and I'm not complaining but the the truth is you might pay for it don't pray we never make a decision based on money but on what the Bible says because at the end of the day we have to report to Jesus okay Uh, while the and by the way that's the best thing for you all too To obey Jesus. Uh, While the people are represented and have a right to appeal, the rule of faith and life is the Word of God, not we the people. Church power has a much higher source than the consent of the governed. Presbyterianism is primarily about church polity, and that by a plurality of elders or bishops, the words overlap in Scripture who are under shepherds, 1 Peter 5 we looked at, overseers, Acts 20, servants of the church, Philippians 1, and who rule and watch over the souls of the church, Hebrews 13. And by the way, it says we must give account to Christ. Uh, When I point out the word bishops there, uh, the word presbyteros, um, I'm forgetting if there's another Greek word, but uh, the word for presbyter, the word for bishop, when you see the word bishop, it's a synonym. If you see it in English, it's the same thing, okay? There there are not bishops. It's the same thing, presbyters. Okay. Uh, Paul instructs Timothy and Titus to find and ordain elders, plural. Churches are told to submit to their elders, plural. The Old Testament connection uh, with elders are the judges, plural. First appointed in Exodus 18 to support Moses in helping the people apply God's word to their daily lives. By the way, What's the most important scripture about elders, knowing what they should be like and, and, and electing them? Exodus 18. That's why there's a lot of that related to the discussion of thir- three office in the New Testament, what Paul's actually defining, and then the other new um, office of deacon, okay? Exodus 18 is the big place to go for, for elders. Uh, just as the essential aspect of government in the state is to enforce the law for public peace, So is the purpose of church government. So in the New Testament, quote, the congregation for its part is to acknowledge the God-given authority of its leaders and follow the lead they give. Now, I think I give you a bunch of footnotes here. Yeah, if you want to look at number 608, this relates to parenting, by the way. People are afraid of this idea of authority in all spheres of life. What is the job of authority, whether it's in the state or in the church or in the family? The authority is mostly about enforcing the law, which is why we remind our children, you are not allowed to hit. (laughs) Parents only spank, you know. I mean, there's an authority of who can do certain things, right? You're not allowed to speak to that person, and -and so-and-so down the street does not have the authority over my child because I'm the dad, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But authority is about enforcing the law. You've been given authority, parents To make your children obey you, that's what it is. And if you don't enforce the law, you are abdicating your authority and you have no authority. And by the way, it'll show. And it'll also show how all the authorities in the world have to deal with them later, such as in prison or in other things, because they don't know how to submit to authority because their parents never made them. Okay, That's another sermon I can get on, but same thing with the civil government. What is their job? Romans 13. They don't bear the sword in vain. It's to make you obey and to discipline when we don't. Church authority is the same thing. It's enforcing God's rules, positively and negatively. Okay? We don't like this. That's the truth. That's what it is. Authority is about enforcing the rules. You can't make me. Yes, I can. I've been given that authority. Okay? Um, Moving on to page 206. Roland Ward explains succinctly, The power of the keys belongs to the church, Matthew 16, 19, we read that tonight. The power of the, also Matthew 18, picking up on it. Uh, the power of the sword belongs to the state, Romans 13, verse 4. And we looked at that a lot in the chapter on civil government, so I'll try not to expand too much. But in this case, the power of the keys of the church belong to the church and not to the state. The government doesn't get to tell us who's going to be our officers. The government doesn't get to tell us we cannot ban someone from the Lord's Supper. And that's the context they end up dealing with in Parliament and why this chapter is largely rejected. The Westminster Standards were never accepted by the Church of England, which was the ones who commissioned it. Why? Mostly this. And then you see that reflected in Americans changing some of these issues. Okay. Uh, section 2, top of page 206. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue whereof they have power, or that means authority respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censors. Now, that's the word of our chapter tonight. And to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censors, as occasion shall require. So, for instance, we've had the case where someone had to be excommunicated. There was repentance. And there's actually a form to follow in our black book. We receive them back into the church with a new profession, uh, there, there's all these things. There's all these things. You you can kick them out, and you can bring them in, and you can bring them back in. But it's the officers of the church who have that authority. Yes, Abraham. Can we pass the mic back? Yeah. Sure. All right. You hold on to it, and if anybody else, just push this on and turn, and turn it off. Okay? You may have already gone over this in the back kind of the... Hold it right in front of the mouth, please. Well, not yeah, down, but like facing your lips. That's the way that microphone's made to work. Yeah. You may have already gone over this in the baptism chapter, but if someone is excommunicated and then they repent and they come back to church, would they have to be baptized again? It's a great question. I was wondering about that recently, and the answer is I'm not sure. I can't remember if I've thought about or done that. I'm not not sure I remember if we did that, but it would seem a logical thing to do. Mm -hmm. Although, actually, let me say this. Getting back to the topic we discussed a few weeks ago about validity of certain baptisms, it's really interesting what Calvin and John Knox say. John calvin says, if it 's the devil that baptized you, it still counts <laughs> uh, i won 't get into why, but it seems to me because the baptism is pointing to the truth of god 's faithfulness my, my default i 'm thinking i 'm not saying i 'm not declaring without session. I think it probably can still apply because it 's still pointing to god 's faithfulness, even if it's just a matter of bringing you back it 's a great question, and I, I think Session should review it more. yeah No more hard questions, please. only easy ones. Give me some knock out of the park." <laughs> you have a question? Yeah. It's so a good question. He's bringing up what about the prodigal son who when squanders money as father's inheritance, father takes him right back, right? The only thing I would say is there was no formal severing of the relationship. He's away. He's living, squandering. He hasn't technically been disowned as a son, but it's a good question. I think that's relevant. Yeah. Yes, it I don't think that's required. No. I don't think necessarily. Why is that s- supposed to be considered a punishment? Let's no, go. <laughs> Maybe that's a motivation to behave. Eh? <laughs> yes, Melissa. Okay. There's one thing that I kind of think that um where it says in the Bible where God turns around and tells Peter that this is my rock. Mm-hmm. And my church, I uh, gave you on know, the kingdom that you believe that Yeah, Peter, right. Yeah, Peter, sorry. Uh-huh. And we kind of did it so here. Right uh there. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Can you pass the mic so we can all hear Melissa better? Especially with the fan running. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah. Okay, good. Feel free to sing something before you're done, too. We like that. Ron loves it. Yeah. Especially if it's to him. So here, okay. sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh, yeah. Very nice. Lovely. Okay. Well, like it says,
0: Jesus gave Peter, right? Uh-huh. Keys to the kingdom. That he can do and undo on earth and whatever is done on earth. Will be done on heaven? I mean, yeah. Um, yes. Um, okay. And I have a thing that I always keep on thinking about that, okay, to me, to follow that perspective is that it doesn't matter. God gave Peter that king. And for us, is to follow that same pattern that Peter has always given in his, in his biblical to teach the people. Okay. That, that you know that no matter what we do, that it doesn't go passed on to another person, right? It, Peter still keeps is still the keeper of that key. Okay. Well, we would be rejecting that if I understand you correctly in the confession as it relates to Roman Catholicism. Okay. okay? Uh, we read Matthew 16 tonight that you're referring to, yes. but then we went to Matthew 18, and now he's speaking to the plurality, okay. and he says the same thing: "I give you the keys of the kingdom." So, uh, by the way. Can I defer to this only because it's a great question and we could spend all night on it? And if you want to, let's go ahead when we're done with the class. I've always said if you want to, we could, that would be a great thing to study. This is what I say, though. I preached through the Gospel of Matthew and I preached on this topic and I preached on that challenging thing to understand. And I went even narrower as different reform guys try to try to explain that in different ways. OK. And I'm going to defer to that partly because I'm rusty. Okay. But what we're pr- first teaching is Peter doesn't, there's not a succession of the, of the authority from Peter as the priest or the pope. We're, the yes, confession is exactly. clearly denying that. Yes, right. But maybe what you're saying then is you're recognizing that there's an authority that Christ has given, it hasn't gone away, and therefore it must be respected. Is that actually what you're trying um, to say? Or? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to see. I'm okay. trying to get an understanding of it. Okay. Okay, so okay, well, I do get into some of this more. Let's see if it satisfies you, and if not, ask us more questions. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and uh, if you don't mind, turn the mic off if it's still on for right. the. Okay, good. Oh yeah, you're way ahead of me. Okay, okay. Just so we don't, uh, in case it moves around or something. Okay, so let me let's come. Let's see how we we do get into that in these next questions. Did I already read section two? I think I did, right? Or no? No, I didn't. Okay, let's do it. Great questions, by the way. and I enjoy it a lot. Uh, to these officers, the keys, of, section two. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins. To shut that kingdom against the, in- yeah, I did, so read this. But that's, let's read it again. Against the impenitent, both by the word and censors, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censors as occasion shall require. But I couldn't remember, you couldn't remember, so could we read it again? <laughs> okay, let me explain. So here's the kings of the kingdom being discussed more directly. Although not inherent, but derivative, means it doesn't come from within me, it comes from it's given to me as an assignment, right? Uh, To whatever the officer is. Uh, Yet the officers of the church have not been given simply figurehead leadership. And that feels a little bit what you might have been asking about. It's real authority. It's real leadership, okay? It's not from them. It can be taken away, depending on the situation, but it's real. The keys of the kingdom of heaven committed to them represent stewardship. And this is government. That's Ward commenting. They actually have a job to do. And by the way, I would say more than anything, I think a lot of sessions need to hear this. You actually have a job to do. <laughs> when I go to Presbyterian meetings, it's funny how often an elder will give a report and lament about how these other churches who ought to know better. Nobody does their job. They're not doing what they should be doing with discipline things. Makes it impossible to try to work with someone because all they have to do is run to the church down the road. It's funny. Carl Truman says, You know what has really messed up church life and discipline and authority? The automobile. I can just drive to the next town now, no problem. Whereas it used to be, you were pretty accountable to the town you lived in, right? So, anyways, uh, you have a job to do. Do your job. It's not easy to do your job. It's not easy to be a father if you're going to do it right. It's not easy to be a mother if you're going to do it right. Do your job. And uh, that is namely in terms of ruling, discipline positively and negatively. Quote, the power belongs to them to say what is lawful and what is unlawful in conduct and what is right and what is wrong in belief. It is their right and duty to impose censors or discipline and to absolve from the same as occasion may require. Is a church officer puffed up with a sense of his power and importance? Let him rather be bowed and burdened with a sense of his responsibility. That's green. And by the way, when I read that. I felt that I could almost picture my elders. Mm, I tell you what, if it's a burden. You know, that's why Hebrews 13, 17 says, look, submit to the elders who have the rule over you. Don't, don't make it something that uh, causes them a lack of joy, right? And it won't be good for you either. So there's a self-interest in it. But don't make it such a difficulty for them to have to be elders, work with them. It's not easy. If you're doing it right, it's a it's a heavy burden. Uh, Green warns that this power must be administered. Quote, church officers have been remiss in not applying the power of the keys to keep the church pure in its faith and in its morals. As a result, the church has suffered much loss of prestige and power. What's one of the biggest reasons the church is a joke to the world? Because we don't discipline. We have no authority anymore. We don't do what we're supposed to do. People go around doing whatever they want, living whatever they want, call themselves the Christians, and it's just a joke. But that's because we let them. Again, this power of the keys is entrusted and not innate. The actual power is in the keys, not in the person holding the keys. Burkoff explains, Christ exercises his authority by means of his royal word. While it is true that Christ exercises his authority in the church through the officers, this is not to be understood in the, same, in the sense that he transfers his authority to his servants. He himself rules the church through all the ages. But in doing this, he uses the officers of the church as his organs. They have no absolute or independent, but only a derived and ministerial power. So you could see it this way. It's very important to remember, first of all, Jesus is still the one running his church. So, you know, you can feel like you're going against the officers, but it's actually Jesus. That's why in Matthew 18, he's actually talking about discipline when he says, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. Meaning, giving an authoritative stamp of approval to the discipline that you have to decide to do. Okay? That's actually what he's talking about. He's the one walking in the midst of the lampstands, right, in Revelation. He's the one making decisions. So Jesus is the one who's actually the only one still governing you. But he's not here presently. And he can't be ubiquitous. That goes to the Lord's Supper, too. He can't be everywhere at once in the the flesh. So he has hired managers. And you could see the officers as the key. But Jesus is turning the key. Okay? It's always his authority. It's not the officers, but don't dismiss the fact that it is the authority of Christ turning the key, okay? This is against Roman Catholicism, which teaches Peter received Christ's power and has handed it down through the popes in what is known as apostolic succession. So they're actually denying that. Rather, it is an authority derived and entrusted from uh, Christ and his church to be administered, like the turning of a key by his ordained officers in each generation of the church as they are governed by the word of God. It is noteworthy that neither Paul nor Peter were leading the deciding in Acts chapter 15, but they did carry out the orders. If you'll give me just one second, please. This mic stands driving me nuts tonight. All right, behave yourself. It keeps knocking my recorder all over. I I fear the i thinking of Mr. T. I pity the fool. Sorry, I didn't mean that of our listeners. I feel bad for those listening. They're probably hearing all this noise tonight. My recorder keeps moving. I had to move the mic. Sorry for that. Okay. What we're seeing at the end here is, it's a good point, Peter and Paul, those are the main guys you think of in the church, right? Authority, leadership. We see, though, Paul challenges Peter, and Peter changes, right? So there's an example of Peter. Peter makes mistakes. He starts going back to the kind of circumcision thing, and Paul says, I challenged him to his face. Now, keep in mind, I'm sure he did it appropriately, but he did. Peter's not beyond correction. Now, in this case, Paul's actually a pretty big hitter, heavy hitter too, right? To the Gentile part of the church. But when you go to Acts chapter 5, the Council of Jerusalem, which we point to as the example of the broader, perhaps you would say higher courts of the church, by the shared authority of the plurality of churches with the plurality of elders, Peter and Paul are taking orders. They're not giving orders. That's significant to recognize when we talk about all this. Okay? Section three, thanks for bearing with me here. Bottom of page two hundred six. Church censors are necessary for the refl- reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church, if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. That last part I'm going to want to remember when we get to Revelation chapter 2. The the wrath of God might fall on us. Okay? Self-preservation, if nothing else, vindication of Christ ought to be our main concern, right? Okay. Okay. Top of page 207, church censors, that is, formal disciplinary measures, are necessary. The goal is always repentance and restitution, quote, reclaiming and gaining the sinner to Christ and his church. Still, censors or formal discipline are not only for the benefit of individual offenders, but for the honor of Jesus and the safety and testimony of the whole of his body. Quote, when the church tolerates open and obstinate sin, its witness to the saving power of the gospel is gravely compromised. That's Wayne Spear. Censors are to deter, that is to discourage others from sinning and purging out. So like I said, a lot of times I forget when I said this recently, but I don't have to spank that much. They just have to know that I will. And once in a time I have to remind them I will by doing it, most of the time all I have to do is, do you need a spanking? Sometimes I have to start leading them to the bedroom. Okay, okay, okay. You know, and as Mr. Renner says, you don't wait for the third, fourth time, because they'll always wait for the third, fourth. You know, They need to know it's going to be quick and swift and done. By the way, then you're not playing all these psychological games and guilt trips. It's done, it's over, they know. Yeah, I don't want that. Even little Gideon, I've hardly touched him, but, and very softly, but I can say to him right now, Do you need a spanking? He's at an age where it doesn't always work. But do you know what he does sometimes? He goes, shakes his head and goes, no, no, no. And then what does he do? He starts behaving. By the way, he's my sixth child. I know what I'm talking about, folks. Let me share the story of Olivia once when I got her to behave in church at one and a half, okay? Um, But uh, the, the point of it is, it's to restore them. It's to help them obey. But if they don't, then you got all this stuff going on where nothing, nothing makes, nothing's happening, nothing makes any sense. Do whatever you want. There's no real authority. There's no real organization. There's no order. 1 Corinthians 14, God is not the God of confusion. And so we are to do everything decently in order. And there's a reason that people obey the speed limit. I thank the Lord a lot of times when I see a police officer on the corner because you know what? I'm going too fast. And you know what? I realize I could kill someone. I'm going too fast. And I slow down because I don't want to get a ticket. But then I thank the Lord not only for protecting me, but protecting others, which is the point, right? So there's got to be a place where authority is exercised or everybody's in danger. And the church is a joke. Uh, as we are a covenant people, uh, I don't know if I read this. Censors, oh yeah, I did. Uh, as we are a covenant people, we, are, we affect each other in our covenant relationship with God. Consider Achan's effect on Israel, Joshua 7. Church discipline is Christ-ordained means of preserving pure unity that witnesses to Him. We make Jesus look like a joke when we let everybody do whatever they want, and the Bible, which tells us how to live, we clearly doesn't matter. Why do people disobey the Bible? Because they're allowed to. That's why. To neglect keeping house is to have a filthy and broken home in danger of being condemned and with temporal judgment. Quote, lack of church discipline is to be seen for what it really is, not a loving concern, as is hypocritically claimed, but an indifference to the honor of Christ and the welfare of his flock. When error and sin are left alone, they will spread. It's true with children in the family. It's true with the church. It's true with the state. Do we have a problem with rising crime and all kinds of issues? Why can people shoot up people in supermarkets and schools and malls and movie theaters all the time? Because they can get away with it. And then they can have a lifetime in prison being taken care of because we'll pay for them to do that. When they should be executed for it. Which is what used to happen. There are plenty of churches that will never deal with your sin they usually turn into the synagogues of Satan. Again, I'm referencing what they've said earlier, which is quoting Revelation. Quote, when men fail to properly exercise or administer the keys, that is, preaching the word and disciplining by the word, Christ gives them to others. By God's grace, this church will not lose the keys for lack of use. I want to say Christ gives them to others gives them away to someone. And by the way, it's often self-discipline. Most people don't stay for discipline, by the way. They just leave, and they don't answer your phone calls, and they don't answer the emails, and they don't show up for meetings. They just leave, and they never communicate with you. Because they can find another church down the road that doesn't ask any questions, and could care less if they're under discipline. doesn't matter. And some of them, oh yeah, we'll make you an elder, by the way. For serious sins, too. Uh, but uh, here's the thing. They go other places. A lot of times, they leave the church. They leave the visible church altogether. Now, just like with anything, we don't deal with our children for many, many years. They don't leave house right away, but eventually it's where they got to go or they leave and it's a mess. Same thing with the church. It may be that it's a generation or two later where there's a cleaning of house by Jesus and there's a huge exodus from the church because of what was never dealt with for decades. By God's grace, this church will not lose the keys for lack of use. Durham writes, as theologians say, excommunication is added to confirm God's threatenings as sacraments seal the promises. Ward soberly comments, excommunication is relatively rare in Presbyterian circles, particularly in the 20th century. It is too rare, he says. He says there ought to be more excommunications. Why? Not because he revels in it, and Durham warns it shouldn't be too common. But he says the problem is this should be happening more than it does. Compared to church history, All of a sudden, everybody's really holy. There's no church problems. He also shares a helpful antidote by the well-known pastor R.M. McShane to demonstrate the importance of church discipline. Now, you know who McShane is. He's really well known for being particularly godly, a Scottish minister, particularly strong preacher. And there were many conversions under his ministry. And I think he only lived about 30 years old but he had such a powerful ministry that we know his name, even though he only lived to 30. That being said, and considering what we tend to only think about with Robert McShane, listen to what he writes here. When I, and by the way, they opened the book I'm going to reference later, the opening introduction to the book by James Durham, work on church discipline, they open with this quote. Robert McShane, When I first entered upon the work of the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great work and almost only work was to pray and preach. But it pleased God who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of the souls of those under our care. And from that hour, a new light broke into my mind, and I saw that if preaching be an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. In fact, he says, I noticed that through church discipline, some people were converted. Because it's a witness to itself. Van Dixhorn writes, discipline is alarming. Yeah, go figure. It's not happy. It's not pleasant. We don't like it. Which is why authorities don't choose to do it. I don't want them not to like me. It's supposed to be alarming. It's to make you feel bad and not want the bad consequence anymore. It works a lot of the time. Not perfectly we're sinners, but it's supposed to be alarming. It's, I mean, we're not talking about spanking you, by the way, in church. But, you know, if you have to be called uh, to some kind of discipline, nobody likes it. It's, it's uncomfortable for all of us. It's supposed to be. Huh? Acts chapter 5, 1. Right. Discipline, continuing the quote by Van Dixhorn, focuses the minds of disciples and often discourages them from following the pattern of an offender. Censors help us avoid following the wrong people down the wrong path. God has a preventative purpose to discipline. We are to keep what is holy from those who act like dogs and pigs in the church. Matthew 7, 6. God is displeased with churches that tolerate sin. And by the way, that's not just bad behavior. That's bad doctrine. That's teaching that contradicts his word and blasphemes him. Further, Packer rightly highlights that the New Testament clearly shows that judicial correctives have a significant place in the maturing of churches and individuals. Not only does it save people, it helps strengthen the church and helps people grow. Strong preaching without strong ruling amounts to emptiness. Quote, failure to discipline guts the preaching. On that note, threatens to gut our churches. Excuse me, I forgot to say God, Christ. I'm going to quote that in a minute. Christ threatens to gut our churches if we fail to exercise church discipline. So first of all, uh, Engelsman is saying, Preaching without discipline guts the preaching. It's kind of like kids say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you say I'm supposed to do this, but you're not going to make me. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, I know you preach that, but I can do whatever I want. You're never going to deal with me. You're never going to ask me the hard question. Session's never going to deal with something. We'll look the other way. And then it guts the preaching. It's a joke. On that note, again, Christ threatens to gut the church. Revelation 2, 14 to 15, I would like you to turn there with me, okay? It's too, uh, it's too powerful to ignore, and it's uh, kind of the basis of the whole book by Durham I'd want to reference to you later. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, by the way, I did teach the book of Revelation a number of years ago, and uh, so I've, pre- I've taught, it was a lecture on Wednesday nights, that was a long, a lot of lecture notes everybody bore with too. But it's Ron's fault, because Ron Renner asked for it. So, well, he didn't ask for the manner of teaching, but he asked for the subject matter. Um, anyhow, I tried to be very thorough, so it was long and detailed. Anyways, you can go to our Revelation lectures on Sermon Audio and hear me get into this a lot more, okay? Uh, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking to the church of Pergamus, I believe it is, right? Uh, be, but I have a few things against thee. Oh, I commend a few things. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now actually, I should have said through verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword, of my mouth. By the way, one of the other churches he's speaking to, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill your children. That'll get our attention, huh? That's Jesus. I always say people think we're possibly too uh, stern or corrective. I say, have you read the letters to the churches of Asia by Jesus? I'm sure you would fire Jesus. I mean, he is. I'm not saying that we can necessarily always reflect everything about it, but. whew! <laughs> And here he says, I'm coming at you. What? I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth, which is the word of God, right? But I'm going to fight against you, church, because you're tolerating people in your church teaching false doctrine, causing bad behavior, and if you don't stop it, I'm going to take a sword to you. And that word of my mouth is probably going to be cutting some fat off. And by the way, you can go to Hebrews, is it chapter 4, verse 12, I think. For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning between the thoughts and attention, thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, I just skipped half of it. Sorry. You know the verse. I'm gonna If I try to do it right now, uh, I won't be able to do it until I get home in the shower. I have not memorized mostly. But it's a two-edged sword, the word of God. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the hearts. It's going to reveal the truth. It's going to deal with the truth. And Jesus says, if you won't deal with it, then I'm going to have to deal with it. But if I have to get dealing with it, you're going to wish you dealt with it. The same thing like when mom says, wait till dad gets home. Do I need to call your father? Because if you don't submit to me, wait till your father gets home. Which is why they run and hide, right? You know, higher sense of authority, I'm going to deal with it. You don't want daddy to deal with this, you better submit to mama. That's the idea. You don't want Jesus to come down hard on you, then you better follow those he has put in authority when he's not home pretty serious all right i'm starting to preach let's get back to the notes here uh, okay revelation 2 14 to 16 is the theme of james durham's book the scandal of undisciplined disciples uh, and i'm going to point that out in the suggested reading tonight there's some footnotes from him uh, i won't talk too much about it uh, durham does state here's some things from the book which isn't printed yet i'll tell you why but i'm sharing from it um Ministers and elders need to be faithful in this if they want to receive Christ's commendation on the one hand and avoid his sharp reproof on the other. And that doesn't mean just them, it means the church. It is therefore no wonder that the devil is so busy trying to oppose church discipline or undermine it. Failure to exercise scriptural church government and discipline is very advantageous to Satan's kingdom and very detrimental to Christ's. He says the devil wants discipline not to happen. Same reason he wants it not to happen in families. Same reason he doesn't want to have it happen in state. Because we're sinners. We're natural born sinners. We tend to sin. And correction is part of how God keeps us from making it worse than we could. His Christ's kingly mediatorial office. Subduing his enemies. Keeping them from doing worse than they would. Section 4. A lot more could be said, but I'm going to move on. For the better attaining of these ends, the offices of the church are to proceed by. Now here's what you're supposed to do. That's all kind of the doctrine of it. Here's what you're supposed to do in practice, uh, but it's reflecting scriptures. There's a steps to it. You don't just jump to the most uh, difficult thing. You slowly start one place, you're hoping for repentance, so you don't have to get. Just like we scold our children. might get longer, louder in our voice with them. "I don't want to have to spank you, right You, you try not to get there. Right? Okay. Here is the order of discipline for offenses. It is more drawn out in the OPC book of discipline, in the book of order, censure uh, and restoration, degrees of Censor. Uh, that is, they have more steps that we do defer to to follow just to have extra slow down. It can take years usually when you're dealing with someone real difficult because you just want to go slow. You're praying for repentance. You want to be able to say you did all you could. Um. So we use the OPC Black Book. We've always used it. We're deferring more now to what I reference, uh, the RPCGA's Book of Church Order, because we've been in affiliations relations for years. We turn to them a lot for advice in handling disciplinary cases. Um, so we're using that a lot now too. Um, but the Book of Order for the OPC, it first has admission, then also rebuke. And then suspension. Uh, and that would be from the From the Lord's Supper, that's a that's a disciplinary thing. You know, you don't get to just have the Lord's Supper if you can act like this or teach that. Uh, If there's not repentance, you take it to the next step at some point. Okay. And by the way, it depends on the person what you do and how long you go. That's one thing I appreciate about Durham's book. He says, you know, everybody's different, just like working with kids. One person's going to respond really well to certain thing, the other's not. You know. Some people won't respond to anything, but it's a lot of wisdom of how you go about this. But pray for your session have wisdom. And by the way, it is exhausting. It's so exhausting. Um, but then deposition. If you are an officer, you might be stripped of your office. Defrocked, you could say. Okay. Uh, and then lastly, if nothing is going to turn this person and it's a significant public thing that has to be changed, excommunication. Uh, That's a formal disciplinary thing. Sometimes it can just be because a lot of people self-excommunicate by leaving the church, never joining another one. At some point, you've got to be taken off the rolls. A lot of times people just don't ever want to deal with discipline. They don't ever care about being in the church, really. But we do, so we try to go slow and careful. Uh, But what it is, is you're taken out of the visible church. Now, do you remember what is said in the chapter on the church in our confession? out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation or as i think cyprian said an old church father you do not have the church as your fa- you do not have god as your father if you do not have the church as your mother ordinarily speaking our confession adds the qualification i'll move on cuz i talked about that in the earlier chapter but to be excommunicated is huge and you don't want to do it you want to avoid it and if a person's not worried about it then you have reason to wonder if they ever cared anyways Because it's proclaiming you're not a Christian. And it's proclaiming the other Christians should treat you like that. It doesn't mean you disown them or don't talk to them, especially family members. But you don't give them a false sense of hope and salvation when they're clearly on their way to hell. We have copies of the OPC book. And the goal is hopefully they do get restored and be brought back into the church with a credible profession of faith. But that wouldn't come with a change of lifestyle and doctrine depending on what the issue is. Okay. Uh, we have copies of the OPC Book of Order in our library. You can also get it online at this link I'm showing you in the notes. Um, there's also, you can see the appendices of forms that you can use to make a complaint, not just against a fel- an officer, but against someone else in the church. But if you do that, you have got to go through the steps of Matthew 18 first. And that's something the elders have to ask you, okay? So I love what Dr. Cipioni, my uh, deceased uh, professor of biblical counseling, who had a had the counseling center out here for 30 years. Um I remember him saying, so a lot of times people will come to the pastor or the elder complaining about someone and he'll say, "Okay, well did you talk to them first according to Matthew 18?" No. Okay, well you've skipped the first two steps uh cuz then you're supposed to bring some brothers. So you've already skipped the first two steps. So now we're going to go talk to him. I'm going to go with you and we're going to go talk to that person that you've not talked to about this. You want to skip the steps? Now my problem, we're going to go talk to him now since you chose to skip the steps. Now, if people knew you were going to do that, <clears throat> a lot of less people would be complaining to the elders and the pastor, and they'd either go figure it out and offer forgiveness, or just let it go. By the way, most of the time, most of us can just let it go. Okay? Uh, okay, i got to stop. Back to the notes. Um, but there are official forms. If it's going to get a point to the a court case, all right, there can be courts, church courts, where the session meets with a person who's called at a date and time to address the accusations and determine whether they're true or not and whether they should be disciplined or not sadly it's hard to ever get there because most people just book okay Um, and then they you you can only pursue them so long and then you do have to take them off the rolls which is excommunication because they've there's nothing else you can do top of page 209 thanks for bearing with me we're getting towards the end here and i do have some uh, nuggets from watson for you Uh, You guys always look pretty tired, although I know you're enjoying it, but once I read Watson, you're revived, so hang in there. (laughs) Berkhoff gives a helpful summary of the purpose of the process of discipline. Quote, with reference to diseased members of the church, discipline is first of all medical in that it seeks to effect a cure, but it may become chirurgical. Don't know if I'm saying that right. Which the well-being of the church requires the excision of the diseased member. It is impossible to tell when a process of discipline begins whether a cure will be affected or whether the diseased member will finally have to be removed. That word kyrugical means surgery. Okay? Sometimes you've got to cut out the bad leaven. It's going to affect the whole lump. The process of discipline really begins earlier. The elders first disciplining themselves in godliness to be the example to follow. By the way, Burning talks about uh, you want the most authority, the best response from your people. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody always does because of what's going on with them, but elders, the minister, the officers have to be exemplary in godliness, living the word. That's why they'd be exemplary in how they lead their family, some of the qualifications. <clears throat> and people are much more likely to submit and trust your decisions and, uh, and follow you. As well, a spirit of love... I don't know if I quoted who that was. I probably should It was a long quote. um, Burkhoff, sorry. As well, a spirit of love and tenderness is essential to the efficacy of discipline. That's uh, sections of the practice of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. If you don't do discipline, uh, you're not going to have effectual discipling. Uh, Let's see here. Lost my place. Uh, And good discipline involves... Uh, pra- pra- proactive effort, working closely with people on little things so they do not become big things. Now, by the way, that's also why we've got to get back. Things have been crazy for a while here with all the things we've been going through um, in God's providence, but we've got to get back to elders' visits, especially at least once a year, session visits. We need to be in your home asking how you're doing, learning about things, that just don't come up even in regular fellowship times, right? It doesn't have to literally be in your home, but we need to be visiting with you and you all should have a shepherding elder assigned to you as a member. We need to be involved. The shepherds with the sheep. We need to know you and know your specific needs. Sometimes we learn we need to have a deacon help with you with something that you're too afraid to ask financially. Could be sometimes the deacon in their ministry learn there's something they really need our attention to spiritually. That we only learn most of that stuff by getting together. Or also getting counseling. You're all welcome to have counseling, including from the pastor, more formal dis- dis- discipling counseling on things, individuals, families. And we'll work with you. We'll talk with you um, And uh, so, anyways, just know that uh, we have to be involved proactively, not just, ah, great, now we have to do discipline, we're probably going to lead to excommunication. Why? Because we never dealt with them ever, and we knew what was happening, or we had a sense of something, or we didn't pay attention to that person, and we pushed it away, didn't want to deal with it, Then it grows. you got cancer in your body, you got to get rid of it fast, right? You can't ignore it. Notice there are degrees of discipline from less to more severe with the goal of repentance and restoration before the worst happens. So you start with the private, more private, more private, Matthew 18. And then it only has to go public with the church if there's no repentance. Uh, And you start with lesser kinds of discipline and they have to become more formal, severe discipline. We understand this in any other place of life. Um, It also takes wisdom to navigate, quote, according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. That's what our confession points out. Pray for us to have wisdom. Every case is different. Every situation can be different. There's so much to consider. I love this book by Durham. He gives so much great advice about this. Um, According to the nature of the crime, the demerit of the person, and who the person is, what's going on, what's the context, that has a lot to determine how far you go with it and how you go about it. Keep in mind that when you yoke yourself to the church in membership, you are submitting to Jesus Christ and his authority over you, and he exercises that loving leadership over you through his appointed elders. Now, I've shared with you at the beginning, you will sign queries. You will take your vows before God, your membership vows or oaths before the church. And there's like five or seven things that are basic to every church. And you're saying you're submitting to the Westminster Standards as teaching the scriptures? And submitting to the government of the church. And you agree that if there's any uh, problem with doctrine or behavior that's significant, that you will submit and work with the church to work it out. It's funny how almost never, in my experience, that has any weight to a person when you appeal to that vow before God. We've even had some people in an email try to preempt us and say, don't, and by the way, don't ask me to, don't bring up my vows. Well, do you remember the chapter on oaths and vows in our confession? That's a big deal. All right. This is why it is good that God ordains the plurality of elders. You are not at the whim of one bishop or one pastor. While you should be careful not to speak against an elder, 1 Timothy 5.19, you may appeal to the session if one might lord his office over you, 1 Peter 5.3. Durham has some other comments worth noting in closing. So I'm sharing some things with you. I'm in the process of reading now. Uh, This is a great book. By the way, elders, I'm going to ask that we get to it as soon as it's published. I think you're going to be glad. It is the duty of ministers and elders, he says. It is the duty of ministers and elders to discipline those who have caused others to stumble. Since this is so, it is also the duty of those who are disciplined to submit and the duty of the church to acknowledge these decisions, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Who fumes most at church authority? Uh, Before I continue, because this is good stuff, but he kind of transitions. It's the duty of the officers to do church discipline. It's the duty of the members to submit to it, repent, be brought back to the word, be back back to the truth and good behavior and doctrine. It's the duty of all the other people in the church to recognize their authority to do that and support them in it. Because guess what happens when you do this? Now you're the dictator, you're the pope, you know, People, and usually it's the people who had the most nice things to say to you that now are just trying to destroy you. And let me tell you, they never stop decades they don't ever stop because they're always trying to self-justify unless they repent. We need your support. If we're in error, we expect you to show us. And we've changed on things in the church. Uh, but it isn't easy. It's hard. But that means when you're out there and you see people, if they've been excommunicated or disciplined, you don't hey brother, and you don't treat them with the same kind of uh, view that you would if they were in good standing. You need to say, brother, I really want to encourage you to come back to church repent of your ways. You know, I'm really concerned for you. You've been excommunicated. I'm concerned for you that you know Jesus savingly and can be restored to the church. You have a witness to give to these people. You don't make them happy in their sins. Even if they did go to another church that brought them in with no questions, never asked us anything about it. Even if they did make them an elder, for, even though they were doing a heinous sin, you've got a witness to them about these things to back up the authority of Christ and his church, but also not only to be concerned for the healthiness of this church, but the broader church, because the branches of the vine are connected ultimately. Now, a transition to some other things that Durham says that are really powerful here. Who fumes most at church authority? That is, who gets all uppity about telling me what to do or others the the fastest? Who gets angry at being told what to do? Who fumes most at church authority? It is those who are inclined to looseness in practice or error in doctrine, and cannot abide by any such restraints. Those who are bitterly opposed to the discipline to discipline are also against preaching that rebukes and spiritual authority in general. Before I continue, a lot of people hated Pastor Bell's preaching. And a lot of people have hated mine, and it kept us out of one denomination, among a couple other things. And so we have a long paper on our website that says why we have preaching the way we have it here. Uh, By the way, (laughs) it's funny, in seminary, I would have professors tell me, you need to probably be careful about this and that, and then I would have people who heard the sermon in chapel come up to me privately and say, did you have any trouble from people about your sermon? Sometimes I already had heard from someone, or they were anticipating that I would, Please don't change your preaching. We need it. They're kind of recognizing, even in Reformed circles, people are afraid to preach; they just teach. Okay, uh, there's a difference. Suspicions about church authority. But let me say this: preaching should have an authority in it. Okay. Uh, suspicions about church authority to t- tend to arise mostly when ministers and elders are serving Christ, and people tend to entertain such suspicions mostly when they are least spiritual. So he's saying, usually people who are said to be bad leaders and bad authority, it's usually when they're doing their job. Oh, what do the ch- kids say, especially when they're young? First, they think, start saying bad things about you, try to make you intimidated to do it again. Same thing in the office. What have you, a lot of employees like to be dealt with? Oh, what do they do? start starting all kinds of stuff about the managers, right? What have you, because they don't want it. On the other hand, the people who do that stuff are usually the least spiritual. If censors are administered in a way that only lets people laugh at their sin without reaching their consciences to convict them, how does that benefit anyone? Sending a lot of people to hell and making the church a lot less influential in the world than it could be. And as we read earlier, and Satan says, right on, brothers. Brothers. All right, some concluding remarks from Thomas Watson. You know I had to give it to you. By the way, I had to, I had to do some extra searching to find something that related. Because I don't ha- it didn't have something directly. Uh, from a body of divinity, first of all, in the section on Christ's kingly office. And there's a little overlap here of what I read earlier on the mediatorial reign of Christ. But He says this, in what sense is Christ king? In reference to his people, to govern them. We all love saying King Jesus, King Jesus. yeah! But what that means is he has the right to tell you what to do and tell the church what to do. He goes on to say, many would have Christ their savior, but not their prince. Such as will not have Christ to be their king to rule over them, shall never have his blood to save them can't pretend you have Jesus as your savior if you're not serving him as your king and accepting his authority. I'm not getting into the lordship controversy and all that. It's just the truth. You know, There's going to be some aspect of seeing that you truly are a son of God by wanting to live for him. By the way, this quote makes me think of something else. <clears throat> I shared it before. I was sharing it last week when one of you had a question. One of our elders, our elders, I guess, were with Dr. Bacon at his church in Texas years ago. And they asked him, you have all these people here for your conference on the Puritans. Why aren't they at church with you? He said, because people love the doctrine of the Puritans, but they don't like the practice of the Puritans. Boy, have we found that out when it comes to the Sabbath. Okay, moving on. From the Ten Commandments now, and I am moving on. We're almost done. Of the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. That involves uh, what's to be given to the superiors, inferiors, and equals. There are spiritual fathers as pastors and ministers. The spiritual fathers are to be honored in respect of their office. Whatever their persons are, their office is honorable. They represent no less than God himself. The spiritual fathers are to be honored, quote, for the work's sake. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.13. This honor is to be shown three ways. Number one, by giving them respect. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 13. Surely, were it not for the ministry you would not be a vineyard, but a desert. Were it not for the ministry, you would be destitute of the two seals of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You would be infidels, for faith comes by hearing, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans ten fourteen. Number two, the second way to honor uh, your officers in the church. One, give them respect. Two, honor these spiritual fathers by becoming advocates for them and wiping off those slanders and calumnies which are unjustly cast upon them. 1 Timothy 5.19 Constantine, by the way, you ever heard of that guy? He's the reason that Christianity became popular in Rome, right? Oh, I know he had a lot of issues. That relates to other topics we've talked about. But Constantine, he says, was a great honorer of the ministry. He vindicated them. He would not read the envious accusations brought against them but burnt them. Do the ministers open their mouths to God for you in prayer, and will not you open your mouths in their behalf? If they labor to save your souls, you ought to save their credit. That one, that one hits me deep, I've got to tell you, and on behalf of the elders. If we're supposed to try not to vindicate ourselves and let the Lord vindicate us, may it be that others will do the vindicating. Especially as it relates to social media, beloved that 's where most people go. if you 're ever in a place where your people are being spoken against, just like a family member, you speak up for a family member, you speak up for your father, whatever you know happens that you know you know behind the scenes he 's your father, you want to honor him, and if you know they 're doing the best they can, and they 're working hard to honor Christ, and they 're not perfect, but they 're serving earnestly, and we 're all trying to grow together. Speak up for your officers. Burn any letter or email or whatever. Don't give a phone call to someone who wants to destroy them. Because they're trying to justify themselves. That's all it's about. And by the way, it's not about you. They'll chew you up after they're done with you. They don't care about you. They'll pretend they do. But they're only caring about using you for them. By the way, I'm not criticizing any of you for anything, just in case you might be worried about that. I'm not asking anybody to read between the lines. But over the decade and almost, well, not quite half yet, these words resonate. Number three, how do you honor? Honor them by conforming to their doctrine. The greatest honor you can put upon your spiritual fathers is to believe and obey their doctrine. A thriving people are a minister's crown. You cannot honor your spiritual fathers more than by thriving under their ministry and living upon the sermons which they preach. And as much as I just emphasized that last part, this part resonates with me the most. What does John say? Nothing blesses me more than to see God's children serving him and obeying him. Right? Right? Nothing blesses a father or mother more than they see their children obeying and learning and willfully wanting to do better, right? Nothing's more a blessing. And you know, when your pastor and your elders are governing the church according to the scriptures as guided and held accountable to by the Westminster Standards, let me tell you something. When you have a question, you're never a burden. That's the favorite email for a pastor to get. I got a question about the Bible, right? In practice or doctrine... Uh, you know i could use some help can we get together for discipline or discipleship excuse me yeah well discipline if you need it we'll, we'll talk but di- di- discipleship if you need something there's nothing more encouraging than to be working with the flock and to help them grow standing upright white clean wool brighter light to the world more impactful salt to the earth drawing more people to come and worship god in heaven you're never a burden and that is the greatest thing that resonates the most when you guys love the word. And let me say, like, you know, that's what I feel we have here. We have a special church. I mean, just even these Wednesday night classes, I love the questions. Uh, I, I love the discussion. I love the earnestness and the excitement. Uh, I mean, we're studying a lot of stuff in great detail. And you guys keep showing up for it. And you keep smiling, especially when I bring you Thomas Watson at the end. And with that, I'm done. Before I close, let me just point out to you the first. Thing recommended and suggested reading. The Scandal of Undisciplined Disciples, Making Church Discipline Edifying by James Durham. Uh, that's a book I've been asked to actually give an endorsement on the back cover for with Heritage Reformation Books, and uh, they're uh, in the process of getting ready to publish that. They've broken it up into four. It's actually one volume. They've broken it up to four. I'm asked to do number two, and I want to read it before I do an endorsement. but It's great already. And um, it was all one book written in the 1600s, and by the way, I don't know if I have, yeah, look at the full title. 1658, A Treatise Concerning Scandal, The Dying Man's Testament to the Church of Scotland. That's reflecting the truth that he was dying when he wrote this, and it's long. Before he died, he was trying to get this done. He knew how important it was. I'm dying, but I'm trying to write this book before I die, about how to deal with scandal. And this particular volume, broken out, is a couple hundred pages on discipline. And he thinks it's that important. Okay, Uh, So I recommend that to you once it's up. Um, you can also, he's basing that on Revelation 2, 14 to 16, which I mentioned. And, uh, you can see my mention on that. Only Jesus is Lord on sermon audio. I'll give you the link. I say a couple things there. Uh, the form of presbyterial church government, I highly recommend It's very short. We don't require it. It probably I should. We say we subscribe to it. I encourage you reading that. That'll fill in a lot of things. Um, the RPCGA's book of church order. I give you the link. And the OPC, those are things we formally go by now. You should know that because that's what you formally can go by. And as it relates to if you think you need to get to the higher steps, there are forms and ways to do it. Also to know whether we're doing it right or not. Um, I give you a lot of things here. There's something else. Oh, Okay, order in the offices. Down at the bottom, page 210. This is something I'm going to be writing a lot on uh, for one of the e-magazines. And um, I think most of Presbyterianism just doesn't understand the Westminster Standards and gets this wrong. And uh, so I'm going to have to be the thorn in the side and I'm going to have to be the pain in the neck again. But um, I think it's important, actually. And by the way, I only know about the book because we studied it. I have to blame Ron Renner again. Pastor Bell had it years ago. He brought it to our study. We thought it was going to teach us practical stuff about elder work. It actually was teaching there's three offices now, too. The minister's a a separate office and it's important and it's confessional and it matters. And uh, by the way, there's a Southern Presbyterian Who's got one or two of the chapters in there? I say that considering our denomination, who holds the two offices. But um, the Dust Reform, they don't seem to—they seem to get this right. they doesn't seem—I don't know why Presbyterians mess this up. I have my theories, but you'll probably stone me if I keep talking on that. But I—I definitely want you to know about this. It's an important topic that we have an official position on, and we are absolutely sure we're representing the Westminster Standards. Most people who represent the Westminster Standards are going to tell you there's only two offices. The pastor is a teaching elder of that governing office, and then there's deacon. There's not three. It matters. I won't get into it. Uh, There's some classic stuff here. What I want to draw your attention to down on page 211, and I'll stop. Uh, By the way, all the stuff's on our website and a lot more than I'm sharing with you here. Uh, I wrote about three or four articles on church discipline a while back as I was requested for a series, and uh, unlike a lot of series, people didn't pick all these article options. So I said, okay, well, I'll write on that also. <laughs> it wasn't one of those topics people wanted to write on, so I wrote a bunch of them based on what I was assigned, because uh, other people wouldn't take it. But anyways, you'll see those four links, and you can see the title in it of what it's about. Uh, those you can look at online. And then uh, our sermons, I give you three or four sermons with the with the links. You can just search them on Sermon Audio. But couple of sermons where we've, where we've dealt with this topic, okay? Sometimes that's subjectively as it came up, usually, and then sometimes just kind of a topical sermon. Uh, all those collected writings of John Murray at the bottom are in our library. I encourage you to look at them. And then uh, next is chapter, oh, I think I have is 30. It should be chapter 31, chapter 31 on church synods and councils so this is going to get to the larger idea of presbyterianism or denominationalism how it should be seen in the presbyterian world but the fact that we should be formally yoked with other churches and in that yoking there's a broader sharing of authority sometimes thought of as also higher where we make decisions as the whole and they come back to the churches acts chapter 15 is the particular scripture to look at for that so we'll be studying that next time but not next week Two weeks from now, Lord willing, I'll be off next week. And uh, I'm glad I split this. I did it both together last time. I'm sure I'm glad I didn't do that this time. Thanks for bearing with me because it was very long. You had some great questions, though. I like to blame you, too, but I won't throw you under the bus. It's my leadership. Thanks for staying with me. And I also want to say we're almost done. After the next chapter, there's only one more class. I combined the last two chapters of the confession. It's about end times theology, millennial views, what this is all about, where we're headed, and what it means in the meantime. That'd be really exciting to go there. Um, So we're almost done. Thanks for bearing with it all, and um, hope you'll be back, our visitors, okay? The rest of you, I expect you to be back. We expect you to be back. Okay, just having fun with it. All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord in heaven, we thank you for this time tonight. Help us to acknowledge your authority not only in the civil sphere, but in the ecclesiastical sphere. You are king and head of your church. Help us to submit to your delegated rule, and how it is delegated decently and in order. We pray, Lord, that this would be seen in how we worship and in every area of life. But remembering in 1 Corinthians 14, when that's appealed to, as it relates to governed worship, when people come in and see that, they'll fall on their faces and say that God is in this place with the fear of the Lord. Dear Lord, would you please do that more and more as we seek to keep reforming In uh, government of the church, especially as we've been making a lot of changes and sacrifices to deincorporate, to get more things in a row, even the changing of our name, trying to get into a presbytery. Oh, Lord, as we anticipate that subject next, please grant us favor and bring us into full union with the presbytery and the denomination. Keep our hands to the plow and uh, we pray your blessing on the officers to be faithful, especially with the hard work. Bless the members to be faithful in submitting and supporting and give us a special shining witness to the world because it will look rather different than the world and than many churches. But we pray it would be to give all glory to you and that it would be seen it is all of your authority. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to obey you and love you and keep your commandments and say to do thy will is my delight and when we might need to be reprimanded or changed, let us be like David who had a heart after God, who in Psalm 51 wrote a whole psalm about repentance. Lord, help us to be also like Josiah who is known more than any other king for leading in repentance. Let us be working with one another, O Lord. Let us be patient and forbearing with one another. And uh, help us to have great wisdom when there are times where it needs to take higher steps. And we pray, Lord, for those who have had to be disciplined in the past, who have self-disciplined, especially some who have been excommunicated, we pray and beg you, Lord, that it would ultimately lead to their repentance, to conversion, to true salvation, and to be brought back into the visible church and under your authority and guidance, even if it is not with ours. We pray ultimately it would be doing that, that it would still vindicate your honor and authority, and that it would keep our church holy and growing spiritually. For growth is much more important to be in how we live for you than it is in numbers, that we pray you would see fit to add to our church daily such as should be saved and sanctified under your guidance and authority, your discipleship and your discipline. Help us to obey the great commission and bless it to be fruitful, O Lord, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that you have commanded, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and trusting you indeed will be with us even to the end of the age. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all your people said, amen. Thanks again for staying late. We're almost done with the series and we'll do something nice and short and sweet uh, coming on. And uh, if I don't, you can throw stuff at me, okay? Just not tomatoes and, uh, you know, not a dead fish or a shoe. Maybe a candy bar, that'd be good. Okay, you are dismissed, have a good night.